The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and visual teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Good morning, everybody. Welcome once again. So glad you're here. I agree. Good singing. You guys sound great. My name is Alan. One of the things that I have learned over uh, uh, doing public speaking for a number of years is that uh, one of the things that does not work in churches is Monty Python clips. It's, it's fascinating to me. I mean, time and time again, I try, to, I try to test that rule, and I think this will be the exception. This will be the time where something is going to work. And no, time and time again, it's crickets. Or it's just like the two people who, yeah, that's that guy back there, and then there's somebody over here who likes it, but the rest are going, why would you ever do that? And, and so um, I'm nothing if not persistent. And so... This morning, I want, to, uh, I want to try again, and maybe this will be it. Maybe this will be the Monty Python clip that everyone says that's when and how a Monty Python clip can be used in church. I'm going to try that in a few moments. We'll see how it goes. Uh, for those of you who are new or uh, just visiting with us, let me give you a little bit of context of what we're talking about and why it says foundation all around. For 2016, we've identified 40 foundational passages of Scripture to help us understand what the overall story is. And there's an invitation for you each week to get to know those verses and perhaps even memorize them, uh, some of them or all of them, and, and invite them to become part of your journey. Where we are in the story right now is in the section I call the church. We're looking at the past 2,000 years and looking at some foundational verses that have helped us understand those years and what has happened. We can't just jump from the Bible story to our story today. There needs to be an understanding of what has happened throughout those years so that we can know more about what's going on in the world around us, and in our, in our own lives, uh, in our, the ancestry of our journey, etc. So that's what we're doing. The, verse that we're, the foundational verse that we're taking a look at today is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And I've run that by a few people this week. They say, hey, what's the verse for this week? And then I say what it is. And the first thought is, oh, I don't know that verse. I'm, I must not know that verse because it's in the book of Revelation. But not every verse in the book of Revelation is about demons and hell and blood. Blah! I know the book of Revelation. It is, it is something difficult to swallow. But, uh, but there are, um, uh, this verse here, Revelation 3.20, I would guess more of you are familiar with this than you might expect. The foundational verse goes like this. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's a beautiful picture that has actually been captured in a number of portraits over the years. And uh, this is one of the ones I uh, found on the internet. I remember seeing this many years ago. And this flows out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. The idea this morning is that we can't force Jesus upon somebody else because Jesus doesn't force himself on us. He stands at the door and knocks. And this morning, as we gather here in this place, as we dig into his word, as we look a little bit at church history, I believe he's going to be doing some knocking. 
Uh, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, I do thank you for this beautiful image. Uh, I pray that uh, something different would happen in our hearts and our lives here today as a result. I believe that when we set aside time and we focus on you, that, uh, that you're knocking. That uh, even when we're, when we're not paying attention to you and we, we think we don't need you, etc., God, you are knocking. You are knocking. So uh, we want to hear the knock here today in these next few moments. This week, God, we want to hear you knocking. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the part of church history that we're looking at today is a part that is, frankly, horrific and embarrassing. It is, a, it is one of the darkest parts of church history. In the year 1252, the Pope uh, issued a document giving permission to church leaders to enforce whatever torture they wanted to on people in order to get them to confess, in order to get them to convert, in order to get them to do whatever they wanted to do as church leaders. That it was this, it was this blanket document that said, you can do anything you want. And this horrific and embarrassing part of church history is known as the Inquisitions. And it went on for centuries. And it was, it was relentless. It was ugly. It went after uh, not only men, but women and the elderly and children. Uh, it was just multiple forms of torture. The, 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 the three most... Uh, used tortures as a part of the Inquisitions, just to kind of paint a picture for you. Uh, one of them was tying hands behind the back and then suspending you from, mid, from, from the air. And it just does, does a tremendous amount of pain on the upper body. Second is the waterboard torture that you've perhaps seen on TV shows and movies, this idea of putting a, a cloth in your mouth or over your face and then pouring water over it. And I watched that and I think, what, what's the big deal? But I looked it up this week a little bit and it is... It is just tr awful, awful experience that people go through psychologically and physically as they truly go through a drowning through that level of torture. And then a third example, and perhaps the most used at the, uh, at the time, was the rack, where arms would be tied on one end and ankles would be tied on the other end, and then it would just be cranked out so that um, limbs would be dislocated and muscles would tear and, and tendons would tear. All of this... Was in, was in the name of, uh, was, was led by Christian leaders in order to get people to do what they wanted. And primarily, the Inquisition torture was not about correcting the people who were being tortured. It was about, it was about communicating to others, don't do that. It was about instilling and stirring up fear as a motivator to get people to do what they wanted to do. Ironically, the, um, the pope who issued this decree in 1252 was named Pope Innocent IV. Interestingly enough, I mean, you know, popes, they, 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 they choose their own names. That's not their birth name. They choose their name. And so this was the fourth person who called himself Innocent uh, as he went into this. Now, there are many different... Uh, inquisitions in different parts of the world, uh, different parts of Europe. There were different sections and time periods for inquisitions. Perhaps the most famous of all the inquisitions 
was the Spanish Inquisition. And my guess is that when you woke up this morning, very few of you woke up and expected to come to church and hear about the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Our chief weapon is surprise. Surprise and fear. Fear and surprise. Our two weapons are fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency. Our three weapons are fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Our four. No. <laughs> Amongst our weaponry are such elements as fear. Surpri- I'll come in again. Yeah, see, I know what just happened. I know. It's the two guys who actually liked it who said, hey, let's clap because maybe we'll get more Monty Python. And the rest of the room is going, no, 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 we haven't broken, we haven't broken the, 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 uh, the, the learning here, Alan. Okay. Well, uh, that was a decent response. That's a pretty good response to a Monty Python clip. Uh, anyway, so here's what's happening in, uh, in Spain in the 15th century, near the end of the 15th century. Spain is becoming uh, growingly concerned about increasing Jewish people and Muslims who are living in Spain. And they're uh, uh, moving from other areas and they're all going to Spain and the population is increasing in those areas. And so the Spanish Inquisition was primarily about addressing that concern, the increasing population of Jewish and Muslim people. What they would do is they would force them out of concern for their religious backgrounds and knowing what kind of religious battles that have happened in the past, etc. They would force them to become Christian. They would force them to become converts. The way they did that is by saying you could, if you became a Christian, you could stay, but if you... uh, hung on to your faith, then you would have to leave Spain. So that, that was the motivation there. The Spanish Inquisition wasn't about turning them into Christians. It was about keeping them Christian. It was the, the motivation to stay in the country. That's what made the converts. The Spanish Inquisition was, a, was their way of enforcing their ongoing Christian faith. And so what would happen is if a Jewish person or a Muslim was caught practicing their their religion, practicing their previous religion in private, then they would be tortured as part of the Spanish Inquisition as a way of, of, of creating fear among the others that uh, we can't do this, that you can't do this. But Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. We can't force Jesus on somebody else. They tried to. It, we can't force Jesus on somebody else. Now, there's no doubt, no debate whatsoever that the Inquisitions were a tremendously dark part of Christian history. The, the two uh, darkest parts of Christian history are the Crusades and the Inquisitions, and the repercussions of those centuries ago are still felt as a part of the Christian movement. Uh, it's, uh, so there's no, there's no justification for this whatsoever, none. But when we look at a moment like that in history, it's important for us to go in and say, what could they have possibly been thinking? What would possibly lead them to the place where they would think this is a reasonable plan of action? In fact, when you look at history, when you look at church history, when you look at really any history, it's a, 
It's a valid pathway to say, what were they thinking? Because in hindsight, we look back, and from our perspective, it's absolutely asinine what they did. From our perspective, it's ridiculous. It's, there's no, no way our generation, our people would do something like that. It's just natural and easy to do that. And, but we have to go in and say, what could possibly have been going on to lead them to think this was an okay path? I mean, there's no justification for it, but, but it's, it's valid to go in and say, what could possibly have been going on? Is there any way that we can learn of our own situation by the mistakes that they made? So first of all, they were driven by fear. There was this concern that the increasing Jewish population and Muslim population was going to be detrimental to their way of life and their, their, their society. Well, does that have any, is there any correlation with what's going on uh, around the world right now in the Middle East and in Europe and in Muslim uh, refugees, etc.? I mean, is there any comparison to what's happening there? Secondly, what was, what was, you know, as we look into what possibly would have led them to this, what if the leaders of the Spanish Inquisition thought they were doing a good thing? I mean, what if they really, they believed so deeply in Jesus and that everyone needs Jesus that they were willing to torture people in order to... Um, to even if they're reluctant to force Jesus on people. Sort of this sense of it's for their own good. What if that was some of the thinking of, I know more than you do what's for your own good, and then this leads me to the inquisitional uh, pathway that they took. And there are times where we embrace this concept of it's, it's for your own good. I mean, it happens uh, for parents, uh, we use that sometimes. Uh, just a month ago, setting up for school, it, there are a number of, of us who have uh, a young child uh, screaming and crying, wrapping their, their arms around us saying, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go into high school. And, uh, you know, or, or whatever the, the scene might be. And so then, then you pull the arms off. And sometimes as a parent, you say, you say I, I understand you don't want to go into that scary place, but it's for your own good, and we're going to do this in a loving way. And, and even though it's difficult right now, this is the right thing. And so sometimes we do that as parents. In fact, you're a bad parent if you never do that. I mean, if you never, if you always do what the child wants, then you're, you're, you're uh, passing up your role as a parent. Let me just give, give me a, paint a picture for that. The United States has a strict policy against terrorism. We will not negotiate with terrorists, right? We've seen the TV shows. We've seen the movies. We will not negotiate with terrorists. Similarly, I think parents should have a policy like that that says we will not negotiate with two-year-olds. I, I think that should be for new, yes, 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 that you can clap for. I think new parents should say, which should sign a policy, we will not negotiate with two-year-olds. Okay, Jimmy, let's stop kicking the old lady. Please stop kicking. You're inflicting tremendous pain on her. Look, she's crying. Please stop. No, you don't negotiate with a two-year-old. You pick up the two-year-old, the flailing two-year-old, and you stop the two-year-old from doing what the two-year-old is doing. You don't negotiate with two-year-olds. What if? What if the leaders of the Spanish Inquisition were just had this mindset of, I'm doing this for your own good. 
What, what if their drive on this was, I'm going to force Jesus upon you even if you're not interested? Is that possible? Is there, it, it, was there any way that that could have worked out? The reason we're looking at Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, is that I think this foundational verse clearly says, no, no, that's not the way this works. Let's just take a look at a little bit of background for our uh, verse here this morning. Revelation is the final book of the New Testament. It is a revelation that was given by God to uh, the disciple John while he was on the island of Patmos. And it sheds light on what their experience was with the with Roman leadership and all that. It also shed, paints some pictures in terms of what the end of the story is going to look like. The book of Revelation begins with a message from Jesus to seven different churches. There were unique messages to seven different churches, and they had a consistent flow to them. That Each of these seven messages started off with, here's what you're doing well, here's what you're not doing well, and then, and then here's uh, the plan of action. And this was the flow with these seven different churches. And there is a general downward trend in the seven churches that Jesus is writing these letters to. That as we look at the seven churches, they seem to get worse as we go along. Our verse here in chapter 3, verse 20, is found as part of a, a message that Jesus gives to the seventh and final church, arguably the one that was struggling the most. The name of that uh, church was Laodicea. The name of that area was Laodicea. And it's in, it's in that message, that letter to the church of Laodicea, that uh, Jesus says in verse 15 of chapter 3, uh, many of us are familiar with this uh, section where Jesus says, if you were cold, that would be fine. That would be great because cold is good. Cold water is good. If you're hot, that would be fine because hot water is good. But you're lukewarm. You're in this, this place in the middle. You're lukewarm, and I spit you out of my mouth. And then in the verses that follow in verse 17, Jesus says this. You say, I am rich. I have required wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Does this sound like a church 7,500 miles away, 2,000 years ago, completely disconnected, with any of our circumstances, any of our situation. I would venture to say that of all the seven churches, the one that sounds the most like Awatuki is Laodicea. Not Mountain Park in particular, but our community, our neighborhood. What he says to them, verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. That is, it is in that position of, of, of either... I mean, we are some of the wealthiest people in, in the world. And so that makes it way more difficult to acknowledge the need for Jesus. It's just part of their situation. It's part of the reality of our situation. We are distracted and disinterested. 
There's so many things vying for our attention, so many other things knocking on the door of our, of our lives. And yet Jesus gives this incredible word of encouragement. Here I stand. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Just this beautiful words of Jesus. Even to the worst of the seven churches, even to a group of people who are the most distracted and disinterested, Jesus offers these beautiful words. But Jesus will not force himself on anybody. They, we, must hear his voice. They, we, must open the door. This week as I was looking at looking up this portrait, knowing that there are a number of different versions of of this, of this image, different uh, uh, styles, etc., of this image. As I was looking up this image, I found another one very similar to it. I just found it on the internet and thought, I mean, that, that's exactly what this is not saying. I mean, Jesus is not a battering ram, boom, going to blast through there. It says clearly, I stand at the door and knock. Now, now don't look at your Bible. Don't look at your Bible. Stop looking. Don't look at your Bible. Now, this says, verse, verse 20 says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and what? What's going to happen when Jesus comes in? Eat. See, you don't miss that word. I mean, that, it's, it's coming on lunch, and when it's talking in terms of memorization, that's not a word that we stumble in. We remember the eat word here. It just says, then that's a beautiful image. It's another just incredible image that comes out of this verse 20. That, that Jesus says, I will come in and not just spend time with you. I will eat with you. What other God in any other religion says, I will come in and have matzo balls with mere mortals? What other God does that? I mean, this, there's something particularly intimate about eating with one another. And that's why we, that's why we encourage this so much in, in families, that we, would, that we would spend meals together, that we would set aside that time, as, as busy as we are, to sit around the table and look at one another and listen to one another and set aside electronics and eat together and share bread together. That's why that time is so important. There's something significant that happens in that time. There's a big difference between inviting the guys from Pottery Barn into your home to set up your new t- kitchen table and chairs. Wow, that's awesome. That's exciting. That's, that's one thing. It's a whole other thing to invite that person to take their shoes off, sit down at this new kitchen table, and then feed them pot roast. I mean, that's a very different thing. When we invite somebody in and we say, sit down, and we want to eat together. Eating is about relationship. I mean, other people can come and go, and it's a task, and it's a, hey, thanks for bringing that over to my house or whatever. When you sit down and eat with somebody, that's all about relationship. We are connecting when we do this. And Scripture is consistent that it's all about relationship. From the very beginning, the first few chapters, to the very end here in the book of Revelation, it's all about relationship. It's never been about following rules. It's always been about relationship. It's never been about clarifying a moral code and then following that moral code. It has always 
from the very beginning, it has always been about relationship. There's a significant difference between morality and relationship. And, and so often in church, in religion, we get those two mixed up. But they're two very different things. Morality, in a sense, is something that can be forced. It can be enforced. A parent can pick up a two-year-old child and say, enough is enough. We're done kicking. We, in terms of, uh, for us as adults, it's called the law enforcement that the police officers, at some point, they say, you can't drive that car at that speed on that road. You can't. And if you continue to do that, I will take away your license, I will take away your car. I will force some kind of boundary, some kind of morality on you. But relationship is something that can never be forced. There's a huge difference between morality and relationship. Relationship can never be forced. You can never force somebody to love you. God cannot force us to love him. You cannot force somebody to love somebody else. This is very important for us to remember, uh, uh, those of us who have children or who have spiritual influence on children, whether it's in children's ministry or as a grandchild or a friend's child or as a teacher or whatever, that when we have influence, spiritual influence on children, there are times when we can force, we can enforce morality. And we can say, we're going to put boundaries on you. And we're going to make that clear. We're going to, we are going to um, uh, periodically look at your smartphone and see what's going on there and what your history is and what your communications have been. We're going to put filters on the internet. We are going to have um, uh, curfews. We are going to put some boundaries around morality. That's what we can do with, with people that we care about, with children that we care about, etc. But we can't enforce their relationship with Jesus. We can't force a child to believe in Jesus. We can't force a child to be baptized. Now, this is particularly interesting because even the leaders of the Inquisition understood this. Uh, there was an official document that came out as part of the Inquisitions that said you can't force somebody underwater and call it a baptism. Isn't that amazing that they had to write such a document? But they said, you can't push somebody underwater and call it a document. Now, I grew up with, with two older brothers, and they tried to baptize me many times. I mean, we, any pool we were at, any situation, I was four years younger than the next oldest, and so I was an easy dunk. And, and I wasn't, didn't grow up as much of a religious person, but I knew there wasn't anything spiritually healthy that was happening in those moments. I knew that was not for my own benefit. So, so the, even they understood this. Now, interestingly enough, going into the, the history of the Inquisitions, etc., they had that document that's saying you can't force people to be uh, baptized, you can't push them under, but if you threaten them with their life or with torture, and as a result, the Jewish people or the Muslims would be baptized, that counted as a voluntary baptism. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you just kind of go into this. That counted as a voluntary baptism. Okay, here, here's my point with this in terms of oversight of children or whatever. This, uh, this, here's, here's my point with this. Don't make baptism 
a huge deal. Don't make baptism a huge deal. Because the huge deal is them becoming a follower of Christ. That's the big deal. It's them inviting Jesus to eat with them. It's them inviting Jesus to be the Lord of their lives. Not the baptism moment, celebration, uh, excitement, uh, cheering, and all that. Okay? The, the baptism is a symbol, is something that flows out of this moment. This is the moment that we, that we celebrate. This is the moment we make a big deal of when they invite Jesus to be the, their Lord and Savior. The baptism is something that flows out of it. And sometimes we get confused with that when we say, you've got to get baptized, you've got to get baptized. It, it's, it's, it's just like putting all of our energy and effort into the wedding and saying, we're going to make this wedding spectacular. We're going to spend a tremendous amount of money. We got the right colors. We got, we got the date fixed up. We have the right people uh, set up for this. The food is going to be great. Everything is going to be absolutely fantastic. The flowers, everything is going to be great. And at the same time, skipping over that little detail of preparing ourselves for marriage or making a great choice in terms of who we are going to spend the rest of our lives with. That the wedding is a beautiful thing, but it flows out of something way more important. And so I I think it's the same thing. We can't force a relationship with Jesus onto our kids. We can't force a relationship with Jesus onto anyone else because Jesus never forces himself on us. He never forced himself on you. He never barges in, never smashes the door down, never goes where he is not wanted. He stands at the door and knocks. What I think is really important about Revelation 3.20 is that it's not a one-shot deal. It's not a salvation. It's not limited to a salvation issue. It's not something that, uh, well, 20 years ago, I opened the door. Now I'm a believer, and so Revelation 3.20 is completely irrelevant. Jesus is writing a letter to the Christians at Laodicea. And the issue is that this is an ongoing relationship. This is an ongoing invitation to come in and eat, to invite Jesus to come in and spend time with you. This this is not a one-time salvation piece. This is an ongoing response to the knock of Jesus on the door of your life. Now, if Jesus is knocking, there's three options for us in terms of our response. One is we can ignore him. And I think this is largely what was happening with Laodicea. They were rich, and as it says in verse 17, they didn't have need for whatever Jesus was offering. I can ignore Jesus because I don't need anything. Have you ever been at home and, and you just wanted to ignore it? You were home and you heard the knock and you just wanted to ignore it? I mean, how many times have we done that and we just, shh, shh, get the dog. <laughs> Keep the dog quiet. And then we say, turn off the lights. Well, if they see the lights changed, isn't that an indicator that's moving in the wrong direction? But we've done that. We just be quiet. If we're quiet long enough, we can just ignore Jesus. But I think everyone here in this room, we have a pretty active conscience. Everyone here in this room, we have an active inner voice, my guess is. And so we can't ignore Jesus for too long. We, We just hear that knock, and we can ignore it for a while, and then we go, I've got to respond to this. I've got to do something about this. 
It's maybe keeping you up at night, you know, giving you dreams. It's making, maybe make, making you think, maybe I've got to think about this different. I'm trying to ignore Jesus, but I can't. So that's one option is to try to ignore Jesus. The second is to send him away. Instead of just ignoring, you just say, Jesus, leave. And I, I, actually, I actually believe there's some ability for us to be able to do that, to, say, to just say, shoo. Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with your church, with your body, with your plan for my life. Just, just get out of my life. I think Jesus will go away for a while. But he always comes back to your neighborhood. Always. And here's the thing. He's relentless. He will never give up on you. I think we can shoo him away for a while. He will come back and stand at your door and knock again and again and again. As much as we may not want him to do that, he will come back. He is beautifully relentless. And then a third option is that we can let him in. A third option is we can open the door. Maybe there are times where we open the door and we say, I'm so thankful to let you in on this part of my life. And then there are times where we open the door and we think, can't ignore you. I don't want to shoo you away. I really don't want you into this part of my life. But because I trust you, come on in. We'll see what this meal is like. We let them in. So if you're at a point in your life, you're 16 years old, and you're thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I don't know. I've got to make some huge decisions coming up. What, what's God's plan for my life? Or maybe you're 46 years old and asking the same questions. What am I going to do with my life? Let them in. Maybe you are creating your pros and cons list of some huge decision that's in front of you right now. Huge decision that you've been wrestling with and, and talking about and working on for quite some time. Let them in. Let them in on that. Maybe there's a, a, a strained relationship in your marriage or with your kids or at work or friends. A difficult relationship. Let them in. Let them into that. Somebody earlier this morning just said, just said that, that's just so helpful because we so often think it's about my work, my do it. I got to work. I got to fix it. I got to do it. And sometimes it's just a matter of let them in. Let them in. Let them in. Let them come and sit down and eat with you and have relationship with you and say, Jesus, what do I do here? What do I do? That's what prayer is all about is inviting Jesus into that moment and just letting him into that moment. Saying, I want to, I out of this relationship, something beautiful will flow out of that. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Have you ever heard Jesus knocking? Have you ever felt like there was this tapping on your soul? That there was this, there was this attention. Someone, something inside of you was trying to get your attention. Have you ever felt that there was the knocking of Jesus as portrayed here in Revelation 3.20? He's inviting you to let him in. He will not force himself on you. He will not force himself into your life. He will not force you to trust him. He will not force you to love him. He will not force you 
to experience freedom from your addiction or from a bad habit. He will not force you to live generously. He will not force you to experience joy in the midst of terrible circumstances. He will not force any of those things on you. He will not force you to love other people. He stands at the door and knocks. And then we decide how we respond to that. The band is going to come out and lead us in one uh, final song. As we head into that, would you stand? And I want to pray with you. Father in heaven, thank you again for this beautiful picture. This beautiful picture of you standing at the door and waiting for an invitation. That you love us so much that you won't barge in. That you will wait for us to invite you in. And thank you, Father, for the beautiful picture of when we do invite you in. That you don't just come in and point fingers and, and, and chastise. You come in and say, I want to eat with you. I don't want to fix you. I want relationship with you. God, thank you that you love us that much. Father, once again, I pray for all in this room who uh, have a sense of you knocking on the door of their heart, whether it is a salvation issue and it's the first time we invite you in, or it's a discipleship issue and it's an ongoing invitation for you to come in. God, I pray here in this moment, this day, this week, that we would memorize this verse, that we would remember how, how relentless, how beautifully relentless you are in your pursuit of us, and that we would let you in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.